0: That's great. I always love it when you've got to stop people talking. That's good. This morning, uh, Leon Becker is going to be uh, is going to be bringing us the the Word of God, and Leon's part of our church community here, so really excited to uh, to have you and to hear from uh, from the Book of Hebrews again. So why don't I pray and I'll leave you to it. Father God, we want to thank you so much for your Word, and we thank you for this. Amazing, the book of Hebrews, Lord, that we've been going through, and just what you've been teaching us through this series. Father, we pray again this morning that as Leon opens up the Bible, Lord, that you would speak through him to us, help us to hear your voice, Lord God, and to learn and grow deep in, uh, in you, we ask. So anoint him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, James. Uh, I'm really quite excited when I came along to church this morning and I saw these uh, two videos, particularly when Sarah was sharing about the impact of technology and knowledge and the distinction between knowledge and wisdom. And I thought, gosh, you must have read my notes because it's very much what we want to talk about this morning. Uh, how many of you here are not carrying a smartphone? Just as a oh, We've got a few more people than last service. You know, look, I think we might almost be up at 5%. <laughs> it's interesting for those of you who are carrying smartphones... Uh, there's over 20 billion websites that are available to you to search right now. And scientists estimate that that's around about 1% of knowledge that's available uh, to humanity. When we go back to the time at which the writer of Hebrews is writing, it took about 5,000 years for humanity to double the amount of knowledge that it had available to it it took around about 1,500 years for that knowledge to double again. So around about 1,500 AD, humanity had doubled its knowledge twice. It took 250 years for that knowledge to double again and about 150 years for it to double yet again. Scientists estimate that at the moment, it's taking between one and two years for human knowledge to double and for those of you who are still young and you've got a fair amount of life left to you, by the time uh, we hit 2040, it's estimated that we will be doubling knowledge every month. Think about what that means. We are not short of knowledge. But I think it would be a very brave person who would say that we don't lack wisdom. In fact, if one looks at what we could do with all of this knowledge, what a huge difference we could make to the world, one would think perhaps we don't aspire and implement that knowledge well enough. We could do so much more. And if we turn to the book of Hebrews, and I think this is part of what the writer of Hebrews is saying to his audience, is that they have plenty of knowledge, but they're not applying it. And because they're not applying it, they're not being wise, they're not being mature. And so perhaps if we just think a little bit about what we've been saying about the book of Hebrews over the last few weeks, the core of it is that Jesus is better. Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to Moses and the prophets. Jesus is better than the Aaronic priesthood. He's a priest, a savior, in the order of Melchizedek. And so therefore he is better even than Abraham. So Jesus is better. And right in the middle of this wonderful portrayal of the greatness of Jesus, he suddenly takes this detour into the verses that we'll be looking at today. And of course, he comes back to these in the subsequent chapters. So the question is, why is he suddenly holding us at this kind of cliffhanger And taking this detour. The warning that we are going to be looking at today is the third of five warnings. And to some extent, he's doing this quite deliberately to make sure that this warning stands out. The first warning was the warning about drifting away. The second was the danger of disbelief, of hardening hearts. The third warning today is the danger of immaturity. So let's turn to uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 11, and just read the passage for today. We have a great deal to say about this. Now, remember, he's talking about salvation that comes through Jesus and Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. That's what he says when he says a great deal. And it's difficult to explain, since you have become too lazy to understand Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness, because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. When I first read this passage, it sounded to me like the author was almost scolding his audience. Some of the language, gosh, you guys ought to be teachers by now, but actually I'm having to go back and teach you your alphabet because that's what the word means in the Greek. These people should have been doing calculus and he was having to teach them how to count. So it's pretty stern, but I actually think, after having read this a few more times, that what he's trying to do is help them to realize they have so much knowledge that they could be applying in their circumstances. And because they're not... Not only are they not mature, but they're not able to cope with the persecution and difficulties that they were facing. He talks about them being lazy. They're not applying what they know. Other translations define lazy as dim-witted or dull. Uh, I don't know the last time you got called a dimwit, but that's what he's doing here. So they're struggling to cope with the challenges because they're being lazy. Now, does that sound familiar to us? There are plenty of times that I've found myself struggling with things, and then when I turn to the Word of God, suddenly I find an answer or comfort or encouragement. This is what they needed to be doing. Now, the second illustration he uses kind of expands on this concept of them um, needing to apply what they've learned, he talks about milk versus solid food or meat. Now, if we have a look at the next verse, I've just kind of done a quick comparison of milk and meat. And when one thinks of milk, and, and what he's talking about here is those who live on milk, right? not those who have a couple of lattes a day and still eat other things. He's talking here about living on meat, uh, uh, living on milk. And the thought that comes to mind, of course, is a breastfeeding baby. Somebody who's been nursed and therefore being comforted. It's a picture of comfort. Milk is something that you don't actually have to do much with. You basically kind of plug in, suck, and swallow. Not a lot of effort involved on the part of the baby anyway. (laughs) I won't won't talk about the mother. Um, It's suitable for infants. It's tailor-made for infants. You get fed milk, you don't feed yourself. Contrast that with meat. If you think about your steak sitting on your plate, perhaps at a restaurant, it's usually a slab of some description like this, more than you can fit in your mouth. You have a knife, usually a very sharp one, possibly with serrated edges, and a sharp fork. Those can be quite dangerous if they're not handled correctly, can't they? It takes skill to be able to cut up your meat into mouth-sized pieces, cutting away the gristle, perhaps, cutting away or trimming some of the fat. It's something that speaks of challenge and requiring skill. It involves effort, especially if it's not a particularly well-prepared cut of meat. It takes effort to chew it, especially if it's tough. These all speak in a sense of what the, the uh, author of Hebrews is kind of trying to remind his readers. His, his readers. Meat is suitable for adults because it's such a challenge to eat. You usually feed yourself by the time you're eating meat. You're not getting it fed to you. And in terms of its calorie content, it's about four times the calorific content of milk. So you can see why it's so important to be able to eat meat. Now, we've talked about it here in the physical sense, but you can see how the application in the spiritual sense applies as well. It takes effort sometimes to cut up the word of God, to be able to understand it clearly. Sometimes you have to chew on it and meditate on it to understand it properly. That's, in a sense, what the author is saying. Beautiful picture of Melchizedek, but you guys aren't able to understand it. You're not up to it, because you're not, in a sense, up to the challenge. And that's part of what we're talking about this morning, is this challenge. He talks about trained senses that people who are mature have trained their senses to distinguish between good and evil, right from wrong. Another translation of that word trained is habit. This is something that is habitual, that a mature person habitually chooses right from wrong, good from evil. And that, I think, is probably a very good definition of wisdom. adults learn an enormous number of things habitually if you think about a baby can't walk can't talk can't think and we learn over time to do these things automatically you know i'm standing here i'm walking backwards and forwards i have to say i'm not thinking about it a great deal it's an automatic experience and adulthood in a sense is an encapsulation of a whole lot of skills and habits that have become automatic That's what maturity looks like in sort of a physical sense. Christian maturity also involves developing habits, good habits. Key among these is learning to know and apply the truth of God's word, to be able to choose right from wrong. And in this sense, wisdom and maturity for a Christian are pretty much identical. When I was a, a younger man, I um, have to say I was confronted uh, about the lack of wisdom and the consequences of the lack of wisdom. I was 24 years old, and um, I was uh, spending quite a bit of time in prison. I spent time in Papua prison, spent time in Rolleston prison in Christchurch. I even spent some time in uh, Christchurch women's prison, uh, not as an inmate, I would have to add, I was an assistant psychologist. And so I got exposed to a large group of people who were there because of a lack of wisdom. Now, I asked in this morning's service, I I won't go through it again, about how long people think, on average, it takes for someone to think of a crime before they actually commit a crime. And it's quite shocking because that time, the average time an offender spends between first thinking of a crime and committing it, is less in one minute. Now, think about that. Almost instantaneous. How much thinking or consideration of the consequences of an action do you think occurs in one minute? Very, very little. Most of the people who I worked with had an issue that they would see something and immediately want it. There's a the sense of immediate gratification No sense of delaying what they wanted and trying to get it in some other way. It was just, I see it, I want it, I take it. That also sounds pretty much like an infant, doesn't it? When you've got a baby or you've got a a young toddler, they see something shiny and nice, think about a Christmas tree, the first thing they want to do is go and grab it. Immediate gratification. Wisdom is about being able to see the consequences of actions. Being able to recognize quite a way out what the end result of a certain number of actions will be. So wisdom is important because it can protect you from making bad decisions, right? From choosing the wrong decisions. That's why it's important. But wisdom is also really important because it can help you to choose the right things in much the same way. Even if it means in the short term you have to have a sacrifice or you have to give something up, Or you have to suffer some pain or discomfort. Jesus endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. That's our example. He took a horrendous amount of short-term pain because he could see that the long-term gain was so much greater. That's wisdom. If one thinks about a farmer sowing seed, the seed is there to be eaten. That's the food. That's the food source. And yet a farmer will quite deliberately set aside some of his food or her food to sow and invest because the harvest in the long term will be so much greater. Many of the most important decisions we make in our lives require us to make a short-term sacrifice for a long-term benefit. We give up something. Think about a vaccination. How many people like to be injected? All right. We do it because we recognize the long-term benefits are so much greater than the short-term pain. So wisdom benefits us not just because it helps us avoid making the wrong decisions, but it also benefits us because it helps us make the right ones. For Christians, wisdom is tied up so much in what we read. Sorry, I haven't got a Bible. Well, I do have a Bible. I've got 10 Bibles. But anyway, here's the Bible. Siri is not available. No, I know. Um, right? So much of the wisdom we have comes from the word of God. For Christians, we know the truth that God provides us, and that is, for us, real wisdom. The other thing I'd say about wisdom is that it leads to fruitfulness. If you think about a tree, you plant a tree, how do you know a tree is mature? You know a tree is mature when it starts to produce fruit. When it starts to produce fruit, you know it's mature. And so for us, wisdom is also about being fruitful. And Scripture has much to say about that. So if wisdom and maturity about choosing right over wrong, we see that the writer of Hebrews is telling his readers that part of the problem for them, part of the reason why they're suffering, part of the difficulty they're experiencing is because they're not being mature and applying what they know. How much of the previous chapters has the writer of Hebrews been using examples from Psalms, Messianic Psalms, stories that they're familiar with, trying to help them remember who Jesus is, why it's so important to be able to hold on to that truth and apply it in their circumstances. And for us We need to think, too, well, what does Christian maturity look like? Firstly, Christian maturity, as the writer in Hebrews says, it's being able to discern right from wrong. A mature Christian is somebody who is trained to be able to discern right from wrong. And remember, what we're talking about here when we say trained is it's habitual. It's habitual. This is the natural kind of flow of things. I may not even necessarily think it through. It's become almost automatic to choose right over wrong. If we end up um, looking at, I think, the previous slide, one of the things that helps us is knowing the key doctrines. Now, this slide here you won't be able to read, uh, although if you want to, if you've got access to the Internet, you can read it on the church's webpage. This is actually our statement of faith. The writer of Hebrews gives six doctrines where he says, these are foundational doctrines. These are things on which you should build your faith. And for us, we have a statement of faith which captures the same kind of essence. Now, if you go through, if you've never seen the statement of faith, I really would encourage you to read it. These are, in a sense, the basic things that we as a church believe and hold to. This is the foundation on which everything else is built. And to some extent, it's the thing that you can hold all of those of us who stand up here and preach accountable to. Do you understand these? Do you believe these? If you don't, really important that you engage with them to do so. Everything that you build on that foundation will obviously impact the rest of your life. If the foundation's not right, obviously the structure won't be either. The next thing that a mature Christian demonstrates is that they know the message about righteousness. They have that real awareness of that relationship that we have with God through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, forms a cornerstone of who they are and what they do. The third thing is that they have renewed minds. One of my, I suppose, because I've been a psychologist, naturally, one of my favorite scriptures is about the renewed mind. Don't be conformed to this world any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have so much information, right? We talked at the beginning about how much knowledge is available to us, how much we are being impacted by the things of the world. God's truth, God's truth is knowledge. God's truth is critical and foundational. If God is true, then everything that does not align with God's truth, by definition, must be false. A mature Christian knows the truth of God and is able to discern and distinguish between what is not not aligned with God's word. We need to look at the world through the lens of the Bible and not look at the Bible through the lens of the world. Those of you who, who might be studying or have been Christians, there's a particular thought that occurred to me which I'd heard many years ago, which helped me when I was studying, and that is that the Bible properly understood and science properly conducted will always agree because by definition they're true. So being transformed by the renewing of our minds is the sign of maturity. If we look at 2 Timothy 3.16, we'll see... All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So one aspect of maturity is being able to handle the word of God correctly. If you think of back to our meat analogy, if you can use the knife and fork to carve up that meat properly, it's a sign of maturity. And in the same way, if you can apply the word of God correctly, to rebuke you, to change you, to know what's right and wrong. That's maturity. And finally, the last verse I want to talk to um, in terms of maturity is 2 Peter 1, verses 3 to 10. And Peter takes a slightly different slant. We've talked here about the word of God being really critical. And it is so critical. But there's another element of Christian maturity, which is about fruitfulness, We have the fruit of the Spirit, and we also have, in a sense, the virtues of Christ. I don't think that is 2 Peter 1. This is where I should ask Siri, shouldn't I? His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are growing in the virtues of Christ, then you will be fruitful and demonstrate Christian maturity. Now, obviously, you can take this and say, right, I need to read the word of God more. I need to pray more. I need to meditate more. And here's one more task on top of an already very busy task list. How am I supposed to fit this into my life with all the other things that I'm doing? And I certainly understand that. One of the things I'd say is that you don't do this on your own. The Holy Spirit is here specifically as a comforter and counselor to advise us, to provide us with support. God himself can bring to completion the good work that he has begun in you. God wants this for you. He wants you to mature. It's the natural progression in life that we mature. So you're not going to be doing this on your own. The second thing I would say is that wisdom itself is a wonderful tool to help save time, to become more efficient. There are usually 10 ways to do anything, and one way is the best way. Nine ways are not. Scripture itself tells us in Ecclesiastes 10 verse 10, if the axe is dull and one does not sharpen its edge, then one must exert more strength. However, the advantage of wisdom is that it brings success. So what I'd say is, if you apply wisdom, you're going to take a little time aside to see how am I going to sharpen my axe Finding time actually may just simply mean switching off (laughs) your smartphone or the TV or any of the other devices that you might be attached to. But one of the things we've seen already is that habits end up being really powerful ways of reducing effort. It might take a little bit of time to develop a habit, but once it's in place, it becomes largely automatic. You think about what a baby has to do to learn to walk. We don't think about that anymore. It's automatic. So habits can be very powerful for helping us in terms of being wise. There's a concept that uh, I heard about um, many years ago. I think it was with regard to the Crusaders rugby team. They had a sort of a mantra, which they were using when they were looking for one of their um, championships. They called it Kaizen, which is the Japanese word for continuous improvement. And the story that was told around this uh, was that a samurai would take out his sword, take a sharpening stone and just run it across the blade once, each side, and then put it away. But that doing it day on day on day was the key thing. So after the first week, you'd notice no difference. After the first month, you might see no change. But after a number of years, after a number of decades, the sword would be unbelievably sharp. The power of a habit. Small step, but the power of a habit. So if for us, being wise, being mature as Christians involves developing godly habits, how do we go about doing that in what otherwise might be a busy busy life? So, let me just run through a few things about how to build a habit. And hopefully this will be pretty practical. I'm going to be using the example of reading the Word of God and prayer, but you could apply exactly the same principles to just about any habit that you want to develop. And perhaps I should also say, for those of you who already have habits that you want to get rid of, uh, and you know, we've been talking about some of those over the last few weeks, um, the best way to stop a bad habit is to replace it with a good habit. It's incompatible. Right? So learning good habits can be very, very powerful. So first thing is, and you'll notice that I've tried to make this into an acrostic, which my apologies if it sounds a little clunky. I'm, I'm sure you'll get the, uh, the intent. First thing is help a friend or have a friend help you. It's so much easier to do things if you're doing it with other people. In terms of obligation, it can be really powerful if somebody's expecting you to be with them or to do something with them. It can be really powerful if you've got somebody who's actually engaged and encouraging you and you're accountable to. So help a friend or have a friend help you. It's a great starting point. Second point is anchor it to an existing habit or activity. If you've already got a habit and you can slot this in the front of it, you've got something that will already be in place and that you'll be reminded of. So it's much easier just to add a little bit to it to an existing habit. The third thing is be kind to yourself. The reality is that you will occasionally fail to be able to do what you're looking to do, and that's okay. That's just natural. Don't worry about it. Just pick up, start again. Iterate, and that means repeat, repeat. It only takes about 21 repetitions for something to become a habit. Right? So it's not as if you've got to suddenly commit to something for 6 or 12 months using willpower to motivate you. No, in reality, it's a relatively short space of time. If you do something every day, it's easier to form a habit than if you try and do it every second or third day or once a week or whatever. So having repetition, having it at the same time uh, each day or at the, um, same t- connected to the same habit makes it much easier. And finally, take tiny steps, right? The idea here is actually just to do it repetitively. You don't have to read a whole chapter of the Bible to begin with. All you want to do is get familiar with reading the Bible at the same time each day. So one verse will do really well. Um, I want to use an example here, and I'm I'm, going to obviously use something that I know. And I'm not trying to hold this up as... Best practice, right? So that's the disclaimer at the front, not best practice. When Deirdre, my wife, and I got married about um, 34 and a half years ago, Deirdre didn't read the Bible much, and I didn't pray that much. So we thought it would be great if we could actually kind of pray together and read the Bible together. It was a commitment that we thought would be really good for us. So um, we thought about when we could do it. We were busy, our lives were busy. And finding time during the evenings always seemed to be so difficult. But we wanted to do this, and we wanted to do it together. So what we did was we decided we would spend the time immediately before going to sleep as the time that we would read the Bible and spend a bit of time in prayer. Now, this was good because it usually meant that we coincided at the same place at the same time at night, lying in bed. And so we basically had an anchor point, which was that time at night. We read a Bible, a scripture, usually a chapter. We started small, by the way, in Psalms. Those first Psalms are really short There's a hint for you. Um, And we would pray two prayers each, and that was all. Now, we've uh, repeated that pretty much consistently for 34 and a half years. Just think about the sword. Just once every day over that sword with a sharpening stone. Now, we've had some very interesting uh, occurrences. We've ended up falling asleep. Um, One of us has actually fallen asleep while praying on a number of occasions, and not listening, by the way. That's actually (laughs) praying. We've read the Bible chapters uh, sometimes four or five times before we realized this is starting to get pretty familiar. (laughs) But also, over that period of time, we've seen marvelous answers to prayer. We've had times when we've read the Bible and discussed what we've been reading. There have been times when God has specifically spoken to us into our circumstances by what we've read that night. Over the 34 and a half years, two prayers each equates to around about 50,000 prayers. Now, I'm not saying that quantity equals quality here, right? I'm I'm just simply saying once a day over a long period of time results in pretty big numbers. We've read... 12,000 chapters of the Bible. That's reading the Bible through 10 times, cover to cover. Right? We weren't doing that at all, and that's what we've done in the interim. Five minutes at night, except when you're reading Psalm 119. <laughs> <laughs> Small things can result over a long period of time in very large changes. So what's God speaking to you about? Are there things that God is saying in your life, hey, I want you to build on this. I want you to grow this habit. Maybe you do read the Bible, but God is saying, maybe I want you to meditate a little on what you're reading. Maybe you've had a difficulty in terms of finding time to pray consistently, and God is saying, hey, let's see if we can sort that out. Maybe you've got a habit that you want to break, and God is saying, let's find something that you can do in its place that's going to be good for you and beneficial. So, Let's just pray and ask the Lord to open up for us and to speak into our hearts what he wants to reveal in terms of this habit. Habit. That's how you become mature. Build godly habits. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth, that knowing it is one thing, but applying it is wisdom. Lord, I pray that the simple steps that we can take Lord, would be ingrained in our hearts that you'd continue to speak to us about how we might implement what we've learned today. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who's at work in our lives to make all these things possible, Lord. We don't do this on our own. You're able to bring to completion. You're speaking into our hearts. I thank you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name.